I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your co-host, your hot, hot, melting co-host for the week, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other extremely hot co-host, but physically, I mean... <laughs> like I'm like I'm really uh, attractive is what I'm trying to say here. That's true. I want to deny it. I don't disagree. And uh I'm sure it's easier to feel that way when you are in an air-conditioned house, for sure. Um I feel absolutely disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> uh well I'm sitting in the air conditioning, I'm looking great, and um feel, I'm feeling great too, is what is a really important thing. <laughs> It really is. Um, yeah, well, it's hot out here, folks. But guess what? We're not talking about climate change for a change. <laughs> you can think about that on your own time. <laughs> and I'm sure you do. Instead, this week on the podcast, we are going to close some gaps in our knowledge, maybe in your knowledge, maybe not. Uh, as you know, on this podcast, we're lifelong learners, and there's nothing anybody can do to change that. We're We're trying to figure out whatever we don't know. We've read a lot of liberation theology from Latin America on this podcast. Um, we are always interested in kind of also finding other currents of revolutionary or lefty theology. So in some cases, for example, the theology of struggle in the Philippines or uh, the three self movement in China, right? Uh, different things going on in Korea, just all these different movements that are importantly different, but kind of maybe uh, held together by some family resemblances or you know, moving in a liberating horizon, even if they're not all liberation theology. And maybe we'll say something more about that in a minute. But one place that we've never talked about on the show is Africa for, I think, a lot of contingent reasons. <laughs> We're not uh, as familiar with the history of Africa as a continent or even the colonial process. I realized that about a year ago that I was like, man, what a big, huge gap in my brain. Uh, it's a big continent, um, lots of uh, stuff going on. So Matt and I have been starting to work our way through some material, trying to figure out what's going on there as well. So we are going to talk about in this book, a really neat, uh, in this book, in this episode, a really neat book called African Theology, Enculturation and Liberation by Emmanuel Marti, who's a Presbyterian minister from Ghana, also a really interesting guy. More recently, he was, he had like a pretty high political profile. Um, but anyway, he wrote this book in the 90s, and uh, we're going to focus on some some really neat stuff he does in it. Uh, but before we do, Matt, maybe we could sort of break down and contextualize what this conversation has to do with the maybe the wider currents of 
lefty liberation-y Christianity that we get into on this podcast. Yep. Sounds like a good idea. Um, I think that there is a tendency that's wrong, <laughs> a, a wrong tendency. I'll say it right off the bat here. <laughs> Just to say, like, to kind of collapse liberation theology into one big lump of thought, right? Like, I don't know, um, people might confuse liberation theology from Latin America with the theology of struggle from the Philippines or something. Or, or you know, you might say any type of theology that has some type of, like, progressive political project attached to it might be liberative in some sense. And, you know, that's not, I think, a great way of explaining it. Um, you know, there's a lot of different types of liberation theology is maybe what you can say. Um, and then there's lots of other sort of adjacent movements. Like you're saying a minute ago, Dean, like there's family resemblance. There's a resonance between them that they they share um Maybe a political project, maybe they share a certain, you know, orientation toward politics or something or or hermeneutic in the Bible, but it doesn't mean they're all the same. I guess it's really important to draw this out here at the beginning of this episode where we're going to talk about that that very thing. But, you know, um, the to talk about liberation theology in the context of, I don't know, Brazil and Leonardo Boff or whatever is very different to t- than talking about liberation theology in South Africa, right? Um, They exist in both places, but they have different histories. They have different genealogies. They have different textures to them. You know, they have different sorts of like analyses of the situations and and different hermeneutics when it comes down to like reading the Bible or thinking about church history. So I don't know. Um, Sometimes people just say liberation theology and they mean, you know, (laughs) nothing in particular, really. But I guess it's it's important. It's important to draw these things out that um, maybe they share a name, they share concepts, they share ideas, but they... The the, geo, the geographical specificity is something that's important to kind of keep intact as we're thinking through these things. Yeah, exactly. And just to maybe put a fine point on it with reference to a different part of the world, uh, back when we were talking about K.H. Ting, an Anglican in China, uh, Ting wrote a really interesting essay on liberation theology where he basically was like, liberation theology is very cool. Like, we think it's it's going great. You know, us in China, we we support it. And it's a fascinating thing to learn about. But man, Dean, you're that quote. It's so good. Yeah, exactly. I know it's I've committed it to memory. Um, But uh, he said, that's not what we're doing, though. And in fact, uh, one thing that Ting had noted was they were like less inclined to do theological innovation in China uh, than what they see in liberation theology, because basically they were like, our theology doesn't have to be identified with the revolution because the revolution already happened. And so basically we're, we're just trying to like read the Bible, <laughs> you know, good uh, communist evangelicals, I guess. Uh, I mean, it's not exactly so simple, but there's something to that. Like Ting was trying to sort of mark a difference between the revolutionary situations that they both lived in and kind of what that made possible for them in, in other domains of what it means to be a Christian. So uh, all that to say, as we talk about Africa, it's important to sort of see where African theologians intentionally make links uh, to other theological movements in the world, um, which happens quite a bit and is all very fascinating. We can talk about that, uh, but also to recognize, too, like the way in which they make those links and to not collapse them into, you know, as you said, Matt, like what's going on in Brazil. Um, you know, there are people in, in Cameroon reading theologians from Brazil, but they're not necessarily like doing the exact same thing. So uh, we'll, we'll maybe parse out some of the, the different streams here. Yeah, I mean, not only is this a fun academic point to make, but also like as you're reading it, it becomes pretty apparent that these are not the same thing. <laughs> you know, they again, they they share a liberative horizon, right? There's a similarity there. But the uh, the experience of the people doing the theology matters a whole ton. So let's just 
pay attention to that, I guess. <laughs> exactly. So, so this book is a really neat one. Dean pulled it out for me. Um, I'm not a great theology understander or reader, but um, I'm into this one. Uh, so the book is called, again, African Theology, Enculturation and Liberation by Emmanuel Marti. And the book is really fascinating because it does focus on like a dialectic between these two ideas or these two types of theology, what they call enculturation theology and liberation theology. So liberation theology, you probably can already guess what that's sort of about, though there are some specifics that are really important that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but enculturation theology is something that maybe you're not as familiar with uh, as a term. Dean, is that one that they teach you in um, in, in a philosophy program like yours? <laughs> it's not one that I had encountered, I have to say. Well, let's talk. Let's start there, I guess. Let's start talking about enculturation theology because I feel like that's maybe um, at least a, a place to start telling the, the narrative of these two diverging strains that are maybe not so different in the end. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a... Uh, Marti goes to a lot of lengths to kind of explain um, enculturation theology, but instead of uh, using his words directly, I'm going to grab, uh, I think, something that's pretty handy that, that maybe lays it out. So this is from, the, this is a quote that Marti uses to head up one of the chapters. Uh, the quote was from the Pan-African Conference of Third World Theologians. So you know it's good. You know it's on, on track then. Um, anyway, so it's talking about African theology and um, I, I guess like, you know, the, the role that it should play, like, sort of um, aspirationally um, and also practically in the lives of, I mean, African people. Uh, so this is what the Pan-African Conference of Third World Theologians says. We believe that African theology must be understood in the context of African life and culture and the creative attempt of African people to shape a new future that is different from the colonial past and the neo-colonial present. African theology must reject, therefore, the prefabricated ideas of North Atlantic theology by defining itself according to the struggles of the people and their resistance against the structures of domination. Our task as theologians is to create theology that arises from and is accountable to the African people. Okay, so this is a helpful way to start thinking about um, enculturation theology because it's um, it's very much about rejecting the theology of like you know colonizing forces, right? How how could how could people in Africa, how could African theologians conceive of a type of Christianity that is like thoroughly African, right? That that doesn't rely on the um, I don't know <laughs> all of the goofy traditions of uh, people from the global north from from colonizing forces and so on, right? And I mean, just from that, you can kind of see how it is a pretty important thing to undertake. Um, and maybe it also helps kind of draw out the weirdness of um, Christian traditions uh, that maybe we're more familiar with uh, from North America or from Europe or whatever. Um, but anyways, I mean, you can see how that would be a really important thing. You want to develop a, a certain uh, religious practice that is thoroughly African um, rather than being kind of inflected by the uh, colonizing forces that uh, have done so much harm to people in Africa. So there you go. So that's enculturation theology. Uh, well, another really interesting thing that uh, Marti points out is one point of demarcation between enculturation and liberation theology is is geographical. So uh, liberation theology, as he is using it here, or sometimes he'll call it black liberation theology or South African liberation theology. There's kind of a lot of different uh, substitute terms, but um, that is, uh, as you can probably into it already, uh, unique to South Africa. Uh, not to say that there isn't some cultural exchange or, you know, theological exchange with the rest of the continent, of course, but he sort of says this is one geographical place that has a unique uh, experience and, and also a unique kind of theology related to that experience. 
Um, whereas enculturation theology is the kind of primary discourse of um, uh, the rest of Africa in general, with some notable exceptions, which he kind of points out here and there. So that is really fascinating. So the idea is that, you know, in the experience of decolonization of Africa as a continent after the Second World War as a result of decolonial wars and so on, um, the real question for theologians became, okay, we're politically independent now from our, you know, colonizers. Um, We're trying to figure out what does it mean to be African? So what should our theology look like? Uh, whereas the conditions in South Africa were not as, uh, well, you know, they were different, right? Apartheid South Africa was not politically independent by any stretch. It was still mm-hmm. thoroughly dependent on a white minority rule and so on. Uh, and so the liberation struggle inflected the theology differently. So I think that was really fascinating to kind of learn about and also to think through the enculturation concern or, or the concern for what would it mean to do African theology as Africans really comes out of also that greater decolonial project of like, what does it mean to, you know, find ourselves uh, thinking about how to contribute to our own communities by drawing on our own indigenous knowledge and and trying to see where that leads, even in a theological register. I thought that was a really neat kind of distinction. Yeah, totally, totally. This is where you start seeing the rub, though, between um, enculturation theology and liberation theology, right? We'll talk about liberation theology um, and it's like specific... South African expressions here in a moment, but you can kind of see where, where the rub might be. Um, uh, on the one hand, enculturation theology is supposed to, is, is like seeking this type of like really authentic um, African theological expression. And that's very cool and something that's, I think, really interesting. But uh, at the same time, uh, liberation theology is definitely influenced by, <laughs> you know, all the forces that you're trying to kind of step away from. So like there's a there's a sort of internal tension there. So this book goes on to kind of like work those tensions out and to maybe synthesize them. And I think it does it in a pretty coherent way that I do like, um, though um, maybe there's some, uh, the, some, some, of the, some of the cultural theory could be um, more robust. But like that's me as a person who is very interested in cultural theory. Um, I'll write, I'll write Marcy a letter and tell him all my <laughs> thoughts. But, um, but before I do that, um, let's talk about liberation theology, maybe in this particular register, right, and how it gets worked out in um, in South Africa in particular. Um, yeah. So uh, let's see. There's a chapter in the book uh, where it kind of is laying out, you know, what liberation theology looks like and feels like in, in South Africa. Like what maybe like, what are the big goals of it? And I think it's really fascinating because you'll see a lot of very similar ideas and thoughts, a lot of resonances with Latin American liberation theology. theology. And also with like, um, you know, like black theology in the United States, there's a lot of uh, a lot of similarities, a lot of things going on there. Um, but there's also some really interesting differences and you'll hear about them right now. So Marty says, since the anthropological medium out of which the pursuit of black theological reflection emerged has been that of deprivation and denial of human dignity, black theology or um, this is when he says black theology, he's referring to you know this particular type of South African um liberation theology. Black theology has concerned itself first and foremost with liberation because liberation relates to the fullness of life and community. Liberation, um, according to Niamiko Pitania, which is a name I'm saying wrong 100%. And and <laughs> sorry, let me pause right here. Let me pause right here. We haven't mentioned this yet, but I'm going to say a lot of names wrong. And um, I'm sorry for that. Anyways, um, this particular theologian has uh, explained Liberation presupposes a search for humanity and for existence as a God-given being. 
It's a struggle against this pauperization of black humanity that gives South African black theology its authentic and peculiar African character and distinguishes it from other liberation theologies of the third world. Um, then he goes on to say, also, in South African society, a society dominated and controlled by white supremacy, liberation as a theological category and hermeneutic procedure seeks to understand and interpret this black anthropological reality in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this is a really important place to start because it kind of grounds um, what like what's at stake with liberation. You know, it's not just um, I, I mean, I think this is a similarity it does share with like liberation theology in Latin America. But it's not just liberation as a, a purely political pursuit, but it also has this like bigger picture, right? It's about the humanization of all people. It's about recognizing um, Jesus as someone that is like amongst those people uh, who are oppressed, who are you know the, the least of these, to use the very Christiany language. Um, but it also grounds liberation as not just a political project or a spiritual project, but it's something that's like ontological, right? It's about trying to liberate that whole idea of um, of of the ways that. Um, uh, black people in Africa have kind of come to understand themselves under an apartheid regime. So it's liberation, but in a lot of different senses all at once. Right. And what's also really interesting is you see that humanization theme come up in other liberation theologies, right? Paulo Freire in Brazil, that's kind of the key to his whole whole thing is conscientizing in a way that humanizes the poor. But what you get that's unique in South African theology is that emphasis on blackness in particular, right? The Black is Beautiful movement. Uh, Steve Biko was, uh, who, if you don't know about him, he's a great person to look up and read. But Steve Biko, who was a, a revolutionary person and was killed in South Africa, was huge in the black consciousness movement and also came out of the student Christian movement and kind of put these things together in some interesting ways. And the way that Marti kind of really focuses on that piece, right, that it's the humanization of the black person in South Africa that uh, distinguishes it from other theologies in the third world, I think raises also a lot of really interesting questions about other liberation theologies. Um, Marti doesn't pull this out too much in this text, but it's the subject of lots of other critical literature uh, one of the big things that liberation theologians in Latin America had to contend with when they started meeting black liberation theologians in North America was a, a failure to really appreciate the uh, the issues of race in a, a systematic way in their own work. So, you know, there's all kinds of oblique references to it, for sure, even in the early Latin American theologians. But uh, like Brazil had way more slaves, for instance, uh, than the United States ever had in terms of the transatlantic slave trade. And yet you didn't really get a sort of famous black Brazilian liberation theologian, right? All, all the ones that we usually think of are, are not black. There are some now uh, that are kind of coming to prominence and that is all very interesting, but uh, it's just telling, right, that in all the sort of talk of humanization, it's not that you never got talk about race in Latin America. Um, that's not true. But uh, you didn't have the same kind of like black consciousness movement that you got in either North America or South Africa. And the way that it kind of takes shape under the apartheid regime creates a, a very unique sort of situation for a, a different form of liberation theology. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's what gives us a lot of texture that, uh, you know, that, and that's why it's important to differentiate it from from Latin American liberation theology or even North American black theology. Right. It's different mm -hmm. in all these different ways. And uh, because of that, pretty interesting. And I like it. I'm very into this whole thing. <laughs> um, 
so we have this whole thing uh, about sort of the the ontological grounding, right? But then I guess I want to stress the other side of it too, that this is not detached from like real struggle either. Um, so Marti goes on to say, however, in stressing the option for the poor and the oppressed, black theology, uh, or again, this is like the South African liberation theology, that's what he means by that. Uh, black theology through its conscientization efforts must seek to arouse and mobilize the oppressed blacks themselves to take a clear option against oppression and suffering and join the God of Exodus and, and of Jesus the Christ to become instruments of their own liberation. So I, I think this is, I guess, a good good to chime in here because it's not, uh, <laughs> as liberation theology always is, it's always, you know, it's always theology, it's always kind of philosophical, it's, you know, always kind of um, a little high-minded, but it is also always about struggle. <laughs> so that, that's true here too, right? Um, Marty goes on to say, even this is a great line, apparently the solution to the South African problem cannot be located in the gratuitous options of rich white liberals, but in the revolutionary awareness of the oppressed blacks themselves. So there you go, right? It's not, uh, the answers are not, uh, they're, they're not in the, the rich white liberals. Um, and they never seems to be, the answers never seem to be there for some reason. Um, but anyways, it's, this is about real struggle and um, empowering, empowering like people to, to kind of engage in that struggle. So um, it's liberation theology at its best, and it's kind of got a little bit of a different texture to it. Um, and I don't know, pay attention to that piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all very interesting to the way that Marty starts to parse out why uh, enculturation theology and liberation theology maybe didn't get along right away. Um, to put it lightly, <laughs> as Marty explains in the book, there is actually some pretty strong reactions uh, against one another from both camps. Uh, in ways that are super interesting. And maybe it's worth kind of talking about that before we talk about how Marty tries to find a, a dialectical solution. Um, so you might hear both of these things and think to yourself, you know, they both sound like great ideas. <laughs> they should be <laughs> cultural liberation and political liberation, and it's all part of, of one thing, right? And Marty thinks so too. Uh, but some of the kind of talking past each other happens in some really interesting ways. And uh, there's lots of examples you can find in the book. Um, one one of the great things about it is that there's loads of quotes from other African theologians. So it's also kind of a neat primer on like what's going on in that conversation. But there's a lot of, for instance, in the enculturation uh, tradition, um, a lot of criticism of the uh, South African trend saying that there isn't really this uh, emphasis on figuring out what is the what are kind of the cultural sources of uh, theology and how could we maybe incorporate that more into our theologizing. And the project is really about trying to, you know, celebrate that kind of indigenous way of knowing Whereas in the South African response to the enculturation piece, um, there's a criticism that says, well, it's all good to kind of do this anthropological work, but we're in the middle of this revolutionary struggle and we don't have time for that. And also class is in some cases more fundamental than race. Uh, that was one kind of sticking point for some theologians. So there's a lot of really interesting conversations that sort of come out, lots of disagreements. And then there are a few outlier characters too, uh, one of them is this guy named uh, Jean-Marc Elah, who was a Cameroonian theologian who died in Canada, actually, in 2008. Uh, he was living in Canada in a self-imposed exile because um, another liberation theologian that he knew was killed. A friend of his, Engelbart Mavang is his name, who was a, a Jesuit. Uh, so uh, Elah fled to Canada, fled to Canada. But he had this kind of unique theological voice. I've been reading a lot of his stuff lately as well, uh, where 
he was trained in, in anthropology, did this really interesting cultural work, but also was really invested in Latin American liberation theology. And so he kind of like criticizes everyone, I guess, <laughs> criticizes the enculturationists for uh, not having as much focus as they should on sort of the, uh, you know, the imperialist um, sort of neo-colonization of Africa, uh, but also feeling like other sort of black liberation theology in the continent wasn't paying enough attention to what was happening in, in cultural studies or cultural issues. So all that to say, it's a big, complicated sort of conversation, lots of different actors and players. And as I said earlier, it's not so simple as to say, well, there's just this one kind of thing happening in South Africa and the rest of Africa is doing something different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot going on, but that's sort of the device that Marty says, well, you can start here <laughs> and then uh, complicate it a little bit further. So all that to say, there's this fundamental sort of impasse in some ways and, and lots of people talking past each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was really, I don't know, <laughs> I wouldn't say shocked because I was just reading a book about theology, but I was <laughs> kind of surprised by that point, right? That There are these two really interesting theological movements happening in Africa that both make complete sense in my brain. So like why you'd want them. But um, you find people like extremely opposed to one another in these conversations, which I mean, I don't know. Fair enough. There's a lot at stake, I think, in both of them. And I think, you know, um, I think both sides make a lot of sense. I hope everyone's just having a good time out there. No, just kidding. Um, But uh, Marty does have some ways that he tries to like, you know, he sets these two things up as a dialectic, right? That there's on this one hand, there's this enculturation theology that's seeking kind of like these specifically African answers to theological frameworks and hermeneutics. And that's cool. And on the other hand, there's this like sort of black black theology or this like South African liberation theology, at least in South Africa. Um, anyway, so they're both kind of these opposed pieces. But he says that there are some people who have kind of tried to make sense of both of them together and um, that they're not like they're not irreparable. Right. And I think that makes a lot of sense um, as well. So this is a, a quote he, he uses from another uh, another theologian um, whose name I'm going to get wrong right off the bat here. But Gwenyai Mozaria. Um, anyways, the this is what they say. Black and African theologies are closely related, although African theology has a particular focus on Africanization as a manifestation of their liberation from foreign dominating powers, both in ecclesiastical and secular terms. Therefore, Africanization is a form of liberation from a colonial mentality to a full humanity. It's also a liberation from cultural limitations and deprivation. So, right, this is kind of trying to paint the picture as like, you know, these three things, they, everyone says they're so opposed, but actually, you know, there's a way of thinking about them kind of together that, that in, in a way, African like this, like sort of Africanization of theology, or you know, the the African theologies, there's something really liberating about them, and and maybe you should think about that <laughs> about that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the same goes from for liberation theology as well, is that there's um, there's ways that it is uniquely African that is it's worth considering. So um, Marty kind of goes on to say, like you know, um, this is not like a, a resolved discourse, I suppose, or at least it wasn't when this book was written. Maybe things are different now. It'd be great to find out. Maybe that's the next research question I have. <laughs> but um, anyways, Marty kind of ends this chapter about the uh, the dialectic between these two types of theology um, by just kind of pointing out that um, there's something to learn kind of on both sides of the conversation. Um, you know, uh, well, I'll just tell you what Marty says. You don't have to listen to me kind of ramble through it. Marty says, in Africa today, the major patterns of social conflict cohere on four organizing principles, race, class, sex, and culture. In the struggle for liberation and anthropological dignity, it's necessary to make an analytical distinction between these different but interrelated forms of experiences of oppression. 
As a theological enterprise that takes social analysis seriously, Black African theology would wisely advocate for the utilization of the following four modals of analysis and stress their dialectical relations. The race model against racism, the sex model against gender oppression, the class model or Marxist and neo-Marxist tools of analysis against classism, and the religio-cultural model of analysis against cultural oppression. And I think these are some good starting points to kind of think through the tensions and also the resonances between these two types of theology. I think that makes a lot of sense and um, kind of an interesting way to see, uh, you know, someone who's kind of cataloging these conversations work through it themselves. So, um, but but there you go. That That's like at least a little bit uh, of an introduction to these two types of uh, thinking, these ways of thinking about uh, theology in at least South Africa. Um, and I learned something new and I feel really good about that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I was just thinking too, as you were reading the those kind of four domains or four models, um, one of the things that's great about this is Marti is really sensitive to um, African feminist critiques as well for leaving gender out of the whole conversation entirely. And yeah. that struck me as very interesting and pretty novel. Um, all sort of very helpful to to see somebody trying to identify a variety of different voices in a conversation and then trying to make space for all them in a model. You know, sometimes people do that in theology and it feels like, I don't know, just trying to get everybody in the room to get along. <laughs> but I think uh, Mardi is actually really trying to see liberation as a horizon that draws people in. And, you know, what what do different voices kind of contribute to that horizon that maybe some other people are missing. So I think it's a really cool unified vision uh, in that way. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff in this book that I would love to talk about. <laughs> Lots of super interesting conversations, even around, for example, uh, some debates that maybe approximate debates on the left today. There are a lot of uh, uh, theological questions around race and class, for instance. Which one's primary? Do we have to decide which one's primary? Can we put them together? Are they necessarily interrelated? And, and all that kind of stuff, like... It's really neat to see that that's all being debated in, in Africa yeah. throughout the 70s and 80s, too. Um, and some cool proposals in there, too. So you should read the book for that, I guess. Uh, there's yeah, also totally. yeah, there's also a lot of like you can hear the echoes, too, of um, of, you know, the debates that people have today about decolonial theory. even. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, these exact points that, that are being made here in, in the 90s are, you know, they're the same problems that people like Walter Manolo are dealing with even now. Right. <laughs> and like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the d- different places, different contexts for sure. But I guess like, you know, if you want to think about coloniality and capitalism together, I think as we probably should, um, these are definitely the questions that people have been asking for a long time and that we should probably continue to ask even now. Yeah, exactly. And there's also some interesting kind of theological chapters too. There's a whole chapter on hermeneutics, for example, where it's like, how do these two traditions read the Bible? What does the Bible mean to them? How do they make use of it? Uh, also some extremely unique, uh, I don't know how to put it, some theologians who are like interested in liberation theology, but also very interested in the Bible and don't want anything to do with some parts of liberation theology, but do want to contribute to others. All, all very unique stuff like, I don't know, paradigms that I guess just don't make sense in my own world. So it was kind of interesting to read all of that. Um, But one thing that I also thought was super fascinating in here was the attention to those, uh, those like, I guess, cultural connections, um, the ways that liberation theologies are in dialogue with each other. So I wanted to pull some of that out. 
Um, in particular, Marty pulls out uh, James Cone's connection. And I should note, too, this book. So the, the, the book itself is the author's dissertation that he wrote under the direction of James Cone or, or Cone was on his uh, he was his advisor and on his dissertation committee. So that in itself is performatively, I guess, an illustration here, right? An, an African theologian studying with James Cone. Uh, but anyway, he has this great sort of brief paragraph where he says, when black theology emerged in South Africa, blacks in that country never concealed their indebtedness to North American black theology and its exponents, especially James Cone. Uh, as we wrestled with the challenge of black consciousness, recalls uh, Banganjalo Goba, again, bad pronunciations, uh, we were really influenced by the writings of James Cone. We discovered in his theological hermeneutic a fresh approach in engaging in the liberation struggle. Goba then concludes, I can remember how Cone's ideas, ideas dominated our black theology seminar uh, at place in 1970 and became a useful basis for developing a black theology rising out of the South African context. Black people in South Africa saw black theology as standing with one leg in Africa and the other in black America. For them, it was a combination of African theology and American black theology. And I think it's like that's a connection that I had some vague intimations of. Like I've read some of Steve Biko in the past and kind of seen him quoting James Cone and that kind of thing. But I never really understood how formative or constitutive that relationship was. And that was really yeah. neat to, to see. Yeah, for sure. Um, very neat to see how it is both, you know, influenced a lot by James Cone and black theology in the United States or I guess North America, but also how it's like, you know, very separate um, or it sees itself. Yeah. I mean, like one leg in both, I guess. But like, mm. you know, there's a there's a stress. There's a stress in there that I think is pretty evident that they are trying to kind of like wedge that a little bit further. Right. To say that what they're doing is like, you know, particularly different. I think that I mean, that makes a lot of sense, but. They're, they're connected in this interesting genealogical way. Yeah. Uh, the other connection that you get in here is a lot of focus on Eatwat, which is the Ecumenical Association of Third World Theologians. Uh, yep. Eatwat. <laughs> always have to remember. You, you have to, like, signal the, the letters in the acronym and then remember which ones stand for full words and which ones don't. <laughs> anyway, uh, Eatwat, it's a great word to say over and over again. Um so Eatwat is uh, what it sounds like. It's uh, theologians from all across the, the third world who get together and um, they had some really important conferences, lots of pretty amazing uh, literature that came out of it and really cool kind of exchanges, I guess, about what was going on across the world. Um, the very first Ewat meeting was in Africa um, and, uh, yeah, really dovetailed with a lot of decolonization stuff that was happening. And that is also interesting because you get this sense of cultural conversations happening in a South-South way, right? Like, the whole point is that uh, it's people in Latin America, people in Africa, people in Asia talking with each other and not uh, people in North America and Europe coming down to share whatever knowledge they might have. Um, there's a really interesting sort of introduction to uh, Ayla's book called African Cry, uh, where he talks about like the context in which he's working in Cameroon is with these peasant farmers who are like extremely poor and being taken advantage of by big agribusinesses. And uh, that's like his primary community. And the way that he writes about it is so similar to the way that like Freire talks about the peasants of Brazil or even like Boff talking about the people in the favelas 
And uh, yeah, it's just kind of like interesting to see those rhetorics being shaped, I think, in a mutual way. And um, yeah, seeing the Ewok connection is really neat. It is really neat. Um, I agree with you. (laughs) I don't know. It's just like this is sorry, kind of a trivial point, I think, in light of what you said. But um, it is so frustrating that even if you spend a lot of time thinking about liberation theology and like reading it, you still like barely hear about these things unless you're really looking for it. Yeah. It's such a bummer. It's such a bummer these things are, like, so disconnected. Or even, like, I guess they're kind of hierarchalized uh, in a sense where, like, um, of course, everyone in North America has heard of, not everyone, but people who are theologically interested in North America have heard about liberation theology uh, from Latin America because of, you know, whatever XYZ connections. But uh, I think it's much more rare to, you know, find somebody in North America who would tell you about African liberation theology or something. It sucks. Yeah, I agree. I mean, unless you studied with James Cohn, I guess, or you yeah. know, it's like finding those those conversations. But even that is hierarchized, right? Like, I bet my assumption is maybe this is just anecdotal and maybe uh, saying more about myself than the condition yeah. at large. But I'm, my, I'm not my assumption about that. <laughs> is, yeah, like probably more people do in seminary have to read like a Latin American liberation theologian than, I don't know, James Cohn or something like that, let alone, you know, a Ghanaian theologian trying to pull together what's going on in Africa. And and maybe that's a sign of the times too. Maybe it would have been different 30, 40 years ago. Who knows? But uh, it's true. I mean, there's a, a kind of um, hierarchy of knowledge for sure. There's also, I think, uh, a lot of questions around how these networks are disseminated. I mean, EWAT still exists, for example. Like, you can go to the EWAT website right now and read all kinds of newsletters they put out. Although... The, the sense that I get is that it is kind of struggling to keep itself going. Um, but like it's out there, like <laughs> people are meeting, theologians are talking to each other. And uh, I mean, this is kind of a, I, I don't know, a, a tirade that I guess uh, I maybe shouldn't go on, but <laughs> it <laughs> bothers me all the time that like uh, it used to be the case that this stuff would be like front page news on even Catholic newspapers or like, Publishing houses, literally, like Orbis Press used to publish the proceedings of EWAT conferences in just books. Like, it would just be books of whatever they said at, at the first or second or third EWAT conference, right? Um, and that doesn't happen anymore, um, which is not a slam on Orbis. I think, I don't know, they're still a fantastic press. Um, but uh, it's just to say, like, the landscape is so different uh, the way that we have decided what to remember or study is so different. Uh, something Matt and I talk about a lot off the air is like, you know, uh, we got educated with all these kind of postmodern philosophies, but um, it's really difficult to go find. Like, you have to go looking for all this liberation theology, right? I only ever went to Christian schools and I learned a ton of stuff about how like French people read books and <laughs> did not read a lot about liberation theology. So it's, I mean, it raises a lot of open questions about. Uh, how we're shaping our own uh, seminary curricula, how we're shaping our public conversations, and all that to say, we should all be reading all these Orbis books over again (laughs) (laughs) and uh, also trying to get more of them. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, let's see. Neither Dean or I went to seminary, but um, maybe if you did, there's a lot of people that listen listen to this that I think went to seminary or are going to seminary. Maybe tell us if we're wrong. I guess that's fine. (laughs) But anyways, uh, as people who are just sort of like learning it on the fly, um, I guess, Dean, you've learned it in some different contexts, but I'm learning on the fly. It's been very difficult to kind of like get a piece of this, which sucks. I mean, I guess it says a lot about the ways that um, 
knowledge is sort of produced within Christian organizations and what types of knowledges are legitimate and uh, surprise it's never the one that's telling you to, you know, be a socialist or whatever. <laughs> so, okay. Right, exactly. Um, well, maybe that is a good way to segue back into a neat theme in the book, which is also on the ambiguities of Christianity itself. Uh, there's a lot of talk about what to do with Christianity. Something that uh, Marty mentions right away is that Christianity at the time that he was writing was uh, a minority religion in Africa. So like if you're going to be a liberation theologian and a Christian, you have to understand that you'd be advocating for the liberation of mostly non-Christian people. What does that mean? Um, what does it mean to also be doing theology in a context where Christianity is the, the religion of the oppressor, the imperialist and the neo-colonialist, uh, all that stuff, you know, is, uh, is really interesting. And I think it's also interesting too, because it's, uh, it mirrors other theological situations. Like when we talked a long time ago about China and Korea, um, they also had to deal with that problem, right? Like, what do you do when uh, Christianity is the language of the imperialist, is the language of the reactionary or whatever? And how do you make, like, an indigenous church? How do you preach the gospel in a way that is uh, unmoored from those kind of political desires of the West to, to conquer with the cross or whatever? So here's how Marty kind of parses it out a little bit. He says... Should the churches in Africa continue sharing the common faith with countries that exploit their people? Should we give a respectful hearing to those who call themselves Christians, but whose activities continue to perpetuate the suffering and impoverishment of our people? Or should African Christianity disassociate itself from Western Christianity, which has long been used as an instrument of enslavement, domination, and oppression of Africans? If, in essence, Christianity, as taught by Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and proclaimed by his twelve disciples was not meant to be a tool used to oppress or to exploit, but rather it was meant to set the captive free, to liberate the poor and the oppressed, and to bring meaningful and abundant life, then the questions raised here should not be considered merely as theological rhetoric, but must be taken and examined carefully by the African church. It is only a liberated church that can liberate. And I think that is very cool. <laughs> it's a great line. Only a liberated church can liberate, right? That there's this kind of sense in which uh, the the very project of sort of African and black liberation theologies in Africa are contributing to that liberation of the church, uh, the liberation of Jesus's message from uh, that project of domination. And I think uh, there's, there's a lot more in the text that's very interesting, but I think that line uh, has really stuck with me for a while. Yeah, I think it's a good one. It's such an interesting thing because, hmm, okay, I guess it's an interesting thing because the dynamic here is that like um, the the two sides of of this conversation are how do we how do we come up with sort of like a, a theology that's like you know African in a meaningful sense, right? That's not um, influenced by colonization in this in this meaningful sense. Um, in the United States, though, it's so weird because, like, I guess it's just you don't think about all of the ways that, like, weird European monarchies have, like, really shaped the faith practices that you <laughs> that you do inhabit every day or something. Mm -hmm. You don't realize the ways that uh, that your faith is extremely, like, medieval in content or, like, in, in liturgy. And, you know, for better and for worse, I mean, for sure, right? There's some good things about that, too. But <laughs> I don't know. It, the uh, only a liberated... 
only a liberated church can liberate kind of weighs heavily on on your heart when you think about all, like your church exists because uh because like the king of England wanted to get divorced or something so <laughs> pretty convicting right. yeah yeah i mean it it goes so deep too right i mean we talk about this all the time what does it mean to kind of uh, well, it's that quote at the beginning of uh, the episode that we always do from Arika. You know, what does it mean to sort of be faithful to some aspects of Christianity and betray other aspects? And, and kind of how do you determine what those two things are? Um, I think what's so interesting about African liberation theology is there is a lot of attention to looking at even the subtle ways that that uh, that Christianity continues to sort of um, Europeanize people, right? And this is the strength of uh, of Ela's approach too, who I just keep talking about because he's the other African liberation theologian that I'm thinking about right now. Uh, hopefully there will be more in my brain soon. But in uh, also this book, African Cry, um, he has this chapter on the Eucharist that is so challenging where he basically says like, you know, the Eucharist is this, uh, this sacrament by which Christians are, are unified and so on. Um, but even the very elements of it, uh, bread and wine, are uh, an, an import to African society, African culture. Um, it's this kind of staple of Mediterranean, but then European diets. And so there's this kind of dietary imperialism that happens just in the, the practice of it. Um, and there's a note in the Marti book about uh, the Catholic experience in Africa, right? After Vatican II, when the mass is translated into the vernacular, there's this sort of, it seems like a, a really radical opening to experiments in the liturgy, to really localizing the liturgy. And so you, what you get with someone like Eli is, is a, an attempt to do that, to ask really hard critical questions about what is, what does the liturgy mean in Africa? Uh, what are the European parts of it that are accidental? Um, but as uh, Marti says, th- those windows are, are closed eventually. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of suspicions around the kinds of questions that are being asked in Africa. In fact, there are even unique uh, suspicions in the Vatican around African theology. That's maybe another weird thing, right? I think most people who know something about liberation theology know a lot about like the silencing of Leonardo Boff. Uh, but uh, Ela and a handful of other African Catholic theologians were um, not invited to participate in a number of um, important conversations <laughs> to put it lightly uh on purpose um in within the hierarchy and so on and so i think it's really interesting to sort of see african theology as also uh trying to identify the ways in which christianity is is subtly imperialistic even in those simple decisions to to make bread and wine a necessary feature right you, you can't mess with these elements even though they're they're accidental maybe in a historical sense um, they're, they, they sort of function in this imperialist matrix. And so you have these, these critical questions that are raised, but they're really hard to, to solve because, uh, imperialism is, you know, <laughs> it's ecclesiastical as well as political or social. You know, something that's really just like kind of striking me now about it, because I think I'm, <laughs> I don't know, I was reading this very quickly and maybe not uh, giving enough thought in the moment, but, um, you know, we on this podcast every now and again, we'll get really philosophical about religion and how it works. And we kind of think of it as like a big machine, right? Religion's a technology. You can plug different stuff into it and it kind of changes the way that it works. That's a, a pretty loaded idea. Just kind of lay out there uh, <laughs> this late in the episode. 
<laughs> we're like 48 minutes in, but I'm going to just, I'm just gonna give you a big philosophical idea. <laughs> That's something that we think sometimes. We talk about it. But I guess it's this is such a great example of the, how that actually works out for the better in, in ways that, uh, like, you know, religion just does not work in the United States. Like, the the uh, sort of anti-coloniality of it or, like, post-coloniality of it, it kind of plugging into, into Christianity is really interesting because it affords people the opportunity to really, like, kind of, I don't know, jettison stuff that they don't like or that they, that seems, like, you know, wrong or bad or t- uh, too Western or too European. And, man, that's such a good opportunity that mm-hmm. ought not be passed up. And, I, I mean, they're not. So it's cool. But it's a it's it's one that um, is hard to come by or hard to figure out in the United States because the yeah, I mean, we're not colonized people, so it's different. But I guess I, that just seems really interesting to me that it's like a – that's a movement that you just don't see, I think, in a lot of different places in in the U.S. at least, or at least not sort of like formally from theologians. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot of ways to kind of like get rid of things. <laughs> there's, there's no big no big dustbin you can put things in necessarily. Sometimes you have to just keep it all um, in in the West. But that there's this way to kind of think through that and to to figure out what is accidental or what's undesirable is uh, I don't know. To me, seems very positive. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, like a lot of these critical theologians could have just left the church, right? Like it's a minority religion in a lot of areas. Um, It's a a complicated Christian sort of thing, (laughs) a complicated thing tied up with colonialism and domination. Um, And uh, yeah, you know, whatever. You could have just left and there's a lot of energy around decolonization, Africanization and so on outside the church. So uh, why bother? But there's this real attempt to kind of dig into it, right? And uh, like, say, uh, as as Ella does, like, I want to figure out what it means to be African and Catholic at the same time, um, as far as that's possible, even if it leads to these complicated uh, issues. Um, this other thing that comes out in Ella is uh, this idea of doing shade tree theology. It's what he says, which is like... Um, sort of a theology that imagines everybody gathering underneath a shade tree. So kind of coming out from the fields and just getting together and like talking about religion. Right. And again, there's these kind of resonances yet with like the gospel in Salentiname or these uh, Latin American experiences where the key is to just get people together and sort of think through what does this mean to us in this moment, in this place and presumably that's probably going to be something different uh, than what it means to people getting together in, in Europe or, or the United States or, or where else. And, you know, not even in just like a like even in, in innocent ways. Right. Like what it means to be a Christian in Germany, even for people who are uh, poor in Germany, is not going to be the same thing as it means in Cameroon or, you know, whatever, uh, South Africa or something. So. I think that is a neat contribution of this book as well, just to sort of pull out like in a a big sort of way that there is this this uh, complicated conversation going on among people who want to work through the problems and are really devising some very sophisticated ways of talking about it. Uh, So sophisticated that that's like a reason for the divide. Right. There's like uh, divisions that that occur because there's it's it's so complicated, so big. And uh, so there's all these different kind of experiments being being tried, different things thrown at the wall, different <laughs> different pieces being plugged into the big machine of Christianity. And some people like the way that they plug in and other people are like, let's do it this other way. <laughs> I think that is a, a really 
uh, neat thing to have somebody just lay out for you as a, a person who doesn't live in Africa. Totally. And that's, you know, this is all not even to mention, like, I, you know, it's Africa's a continent is what we need to say. And that there's like a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> More so than we even talked about in this one episode, because like, it's a big place. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of like contending ideas and forces. But, you know, I mean, there's even like, there are even like sort of deeper roots with um, indigenous forms of Christianity, like in Ethiopia yeah, yeah. or whatever, right? I mean, there's a whole Coptic church. There's there's all kinds of things going on that are like at play here that we haven't even talked about yet. Um, so anyways, all that to say, I, I, all I'm trying to do here is hedge my bets to say that there's a lot of things that we have not discussed. This is like one small piece of the puzzle, but it is a very cool piece of the puzzle. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's true. And important to say that at the end here too, Marty makes that note even in the beginning of the book that he's like, there are these kind of, um, he doesn't use the word like a colonial features of Christianity in Africa, but you know, it was, you say indigenous forms of Christianity is probably a better way to put it. Um, so Marty is like, those all exist, but that's not really what he's after, or he's kind of talking about them in an oblique way or as they relate right. to these other trends. Um, so of course, yeah, for sure. That is true. Um, Another really fascinating thing about this, though, is the way that Marxism plays out in the text. And there's all kinds of long stuff, uh, long passages about it. Um, it, Some of it is like kind of boilerplate. It's what you guess, right? Like, yeah, some theologians use Marx and there's even some historical materialist uh, biblical hermeneutics going on in South Africa. That is all extremely fascinating. It's worth reading for sure. But I think what is especially interesting is all the ways that Marxism appears in even the analysis of Marti and other African theologians. Mm -hmm. So in the footnotes in this book, for example, when uh, Marti is kind of citing stats or or telling the story of imperialism in Africa, uh, one person that comes up is Walter Rodney, for example, the radical Marxist um, historian and uh, Marty cites his book, uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which is kind of having like a bit of a renaissance right now. Um, Verso republished a version of it that I started reading. It is very dry, but very good, <laughs> nevertheless. Uh, but it's really cool to see that it's it's an explicitly Marxist story about, um, you know, the 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 sort of point that for Europe to develop, Africa has to be actively underdeveloped and not kind of left underdeveloped. But it's like you know, unable to develop on its own terms because that's the whole source of European development. So really neat to see that come out in Marty's analysis. Um, in uh, in the ELA book, African Cry, uh, I was really surprised to find Samir Amin, the Egyptian Marxist, is cited a, a handful of times when ELA is trying to talk about imperialism and um, accumulation in Africa and so on. So there's a way that, like, you know, in Latin American theology, you often get Marxist analysis, but it's it's typically like this isn't always true, but it's typically more philosophical. Like they tend to gravitate to kind of the more humanist side of Marx. It's it's more about the way that capitalism dehumanizes us. And so, you know, we need to kind of be liberated to to this humanized vision in a philosophical sense. And of course, you see that in African theology, too. But um, I don't often see as many kind of like political economists just directly like cited and relied on as much. Um, maybe I just haven't been looking as hard as I should. But, uh, you know, you'll get references to Althusser, these other kind of Marxists in Latin America. But yeah, anyway, all that to say, really fascinating for a podcast about Christianity and the left to kind of see how Marxist scholarship is informing African theology in these ways that I didn't really know at all until I kind of had 
uh, my feelers out for it. Yeah, well, you learn something new when you try to learn something new. <laughs> <laughs> That's the moral of the story, is that if you're trying to learn something, you're probably going to do it. That's true. That's true. Um, all right. So what do we have here? We have one one attempt here on the Magnificast, <laughs> one belated attempt uh, to try to fill a gap in, in our knowledge of African theology. It's something I want to keep on reading, so maybe we'll come back to it later. Uh, read a few more things, maybe get somebody on the show who actually knows what they're talking about and they can help us press it out a little bit more. But um, I don't know, Matt, what, maybe what's, what's one big takeaway that you got from getting through this book? What's one thing that'll stick with you maybe more than the rest? <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of things, the, the two, the two big things, I'm not going to say one, I have to tell you two. Uh, the two big things uh, that I think are really interesting are like the sort of philosophy of religion angle that like, there's this sort of way that they are shaping theology in ways that, like, I don't know, theology in the U.S. is like not capable of doing. I think that's really fascinating. Uh, but also the ways that liberation theology takes on this, like, really ontological role uh, for uh, South Africa uh, because of the sort of apartheid uh, context. I think that's really fascinating and, um, I don't know, I think pretty cool. What about you, Dean? What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Well, I'll also say two and we'll I'll bookend it because um, I the first one was also the stuff about the dehumanization and humanization stuff. Um, there's a great Ewok quote in there where they talk about uh, the they call it sort of like a, the anthropological pauperization of the African person. That's the phrase they use. And that was really fascinating. Kind of seeing how that plays out was really neat. Um, the second thing I think that is going to stick with me is actually some stuff, some insights from the uh, enculturation tradition. I was super interested in like how they negotiate, like on the one hand, relying on indigenous knowledge and trying to recover it and celebrate it. And on the other hand, seeing indigenous culture as something that develops and grows and kind of moves along in its own way. So it's not appealing to like a frozen past or you know, sort of trying to get back to something, some lost past, but instead uh, trying to create a new path. Um, that was just really interesting to see how Marti explains all of that and, and relies on other figures like Nkrumah and, um, you know, uh, yeah, just a, a handful of um, really interesting political leaders and, and philosophers who think that through in Africa, too. So those two things, I think that's what's going to stick out. They're two good things. <laughs> two good things so there you have it african theology and culturation and liberation first published by orbis it was republished by whiff and socks you can get it there i'm sure uh and uh that that's our, our first dipping of our toes at least into africa for now thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the magnificast if you support us at $2 or more, you get uh, access to a Behind the Paywall podcast that we've started doing again. We're going to be very diligent in doing it. Um, we might not really be diligent in doing it, but I'm speaking it into existence. I'm manifesting it right here before your, for your, before your ears. Uh, you also get access to our very cool Discord channel where we talk about, I don't know, all kinds of things. We're also going to start reading a book about degrowth soon. So if you want to get on, on a little informal book club, jump on in and... You can talk about degrowth with us. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come 
on earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have. 